Are you looking to become a leader in clean energy and an expert in clean tech? Do you hope to get noticed in the crowd as you pursue a career in this fastly growing industry? You are in the right place. Join Karan Takar as he invites clean energy leaders to share industry developments, highlight clean tech investment opportunities, and shed light on how you can increase your chances of employment in this high growth sector. We will also discuss the energy transition across key emerging markets like India and explore partnership opportunities for the U.S. private and public sector. After all, this is the Zenergy Podcast. Hello, Julia. It is great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for taking the time and have been really excited to learn about your work and also your journey to getting where you are today. Before diving into it, could you please briefly describe what your role entails as the Senior Director of Innovation Startups and Markets at the World Wildlife Fund and what led you to this role? Sure. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's always great to be here and to talk to uh, fellow Morton students or alums, I guess, in my case. My job is a little bit of a misnomer based on my title. So I don't actually work with startups, which I realize is, is a little bit odd from the name. But my role is to really work across food and agriculture to develop new business models and new business strategies but at an industry or ecosystem level that really align on a double or triple bottom line. So using WWF's convening power, our ability to identify sort of crazy ideas, conduct research, kick the tires on them, bring together coalitions of partners to discuss them and to work together that might not have ever, otherwise ever come together and to see if we can help build something very different, something that we don't own or manage at the end of the day, but more that we serve as a catalyst to getting that to, to go forward. And I completely love it. Uh, to, to answer the second half of that question about how I got here, I mean, it's it has been a lengthy career journey, but the short version of that is that I have always been fascinated of about the intersection of really using market forces and financial power to accomplish social good and environmental good. And so have worked in various sort of different avenues at that intersection, but always really operating at some aspect of that intersection. This role in particular have really found a way to, I think, to to harness that fully, to get to be very entrepreneurial, but on behalf of working to improve the environmental sustainability of our food and agriculture systems with a, with a lot of room to really look at social and equity and other concerns as well, getting to to tackle that, but to do so with WWF's platform and reach and ability to, to really accomplish things at scale. And how did this particular opportunity arise? As in, how did you get connected to this role? Was there a story behind it? <laughs> Uh, a little bit. So I launched my own startup when I was in grad school and completely loved that, was able to to graduate and pay my own bills. And I realized that is not always the case working in the startup world. We met with some great early success. It was wonderful. It was also a startup. So there were struggles, there were hurdles. I mean, it was a bit of both. And I was really doing most of it by myself at the time. My co-founder was, was part-time. He 
is terrific, but it just meant it it was often hard and difficult to navigate on my own. So we reached the point that I was sort of trying to decide, am I in this for the long haul or what sort of next steps do I want to take? And at the time, I'd also had my first child, my daughter, and she was maybe about a year old at the time. And I began to really crave a little more stability and structure, but knew I really also loved the entrepreneurial world. And so decided to just start having a series of conversations again to figure out, is there something else that I can capture this entrepreneurial spirit and work and so many of the things I love about it and continuing to work in food and agriculture and sustainability, which is where I was working at the time, but to do it perhaps with a little more support and structure around me as well. So began to just have a series of conversations. WWF was not on my radar. I will be completely honest. I, of course, knew of them and knew the panda and the logo. And I love pandas and large wildlife because I think nearly everyone does. Uh, It is captivating. But it was really on my radar for that reason. So I wasn't looking at them otherwise until sort of one person mentioned another person and I got connected to my now boss. Jason Clay. So we had an intro call that was supposed to be a, you know, 30 minute coffee chat that turned into like a four hour meandering conversation, including Jason asking me my entire life story, he starting, starting with birth uh, and my parents, it really was an all encompassing conversation. And it was completely fascinating. Jason is completely fascinating. And by the end of it, we had actually begun a discussion of a new role at WWF, which took another six months to get there, but ultimately became the role that I have today. And so really getting a chance to help co-develop that, which was wonderful. Very cool. Thank you for expanding on that. And in this role, can you provide some examples of projects your team is working on, as well as what evaluation criteria, because I assume a lot of projects probably flow through your office. So it would be interesting to learn about what evaluation criteria your team uses when deciding whether to partner on a specific project. And on that, I can really speak for myself best. I might start with that and work backward to examples. So the the larger team I am part of is the markets team. Uh, and the entire team works across food and agriculture and using market forces to to address the sustainability But a lot of the markets team is focused on using, again, financial tools, but to accomplish really decreasing deforestation. So looking at deforestation and conversion-free commodities uh, and really operating at a large scale. Within the markets team is the markets institute, and that really serves as more of a thought leader, incubator kind of entity for for the markets team. And that's my specific team is the markets institute. So that's where if I could do air quotes on a podcast, but the crazier ideas in air quotes often come come out of the Markets Institute. We have a little bit broader of a mandate. It's not specifically on deforestation and conversion-free. That is certainly a part of it, but it's a sort of broader looking at issues and tools and trends happening across food and agriculture and how we can best get involved. Each of us on the Markets Institute has a different role. We tackle that in different ways the metrics and how we decide what makes sense to get involved will look a little different for each role and and team member. Although I think there's certainly characteristics that are common across all of them. For me, my projects, I might be involved for several years in them. So it's going to be different metrics than a colleague who writes business cases and might write many in a year. 
at the basic level, certainly it's something that has to be connected to food and agriculture. It has to be accomplishing environmental goals. That's going to be true for, for all of these. And then, you know, as we drill down to it, it's also looking at, is this scalable? I mean, is this something that if we get involved, it can scale, it can be replicated, it can live well beyond us. So things that we can hand off or influence as opposed to having to manage in the long term. And then also whether it would happen or not without us is always a key consideration for my project. So there are, sometimes I get involved and kick an idea around and it's fascinating and wonderful and I would love to work on it, but I don't need to because there's enough already happening in that space. So maybe we highlight it, maybe we help to elevate it, but we don't necessarily need to get on involved in a hands-on basis because it will, it will happen without us. So looking at what are the skills we can bring to the table? And is is that what's needed in this scenario? I realize those are all little nebulous. It is not a one-size-fits-all process, to be honest. And so each of the projects, we have to judge a little bit, but those are the, the broad characteristics. I can provide a couple examples of, of things I've worked on. One project I'm working on, for example, that is falls in the very, and then I can show you the contrasting examples, but a very all-encompassing type of project we've been referring to as the next California. And that starts with the premise that we really grow at a commercial level, nearly all of what we call specialty crops. So things like fruits, vegetables, and nuts in California. I'm sure that's not surprising to, to many people that in the U.S. most of our the fruits, vegetables, and nuts you buy at a grocery store are really coming from there. And that is increasingly unsustainable in really every sense of the word. Between lack of water and heat and fires, farming simply will not be able to continue at the same level in California as it is today. It will shift. It's not that we don't think there will be fruits and vegetables in the future, but we do have two fears if we wait for it to shift naturally on its own. One is that it shifts to a region that's not currently farmland, and then you have something called land conversion. So taking a natural ecosystem and converting that to farmland. And if you look at the footprint of agriculture, the environmental footprint, that is where the biggest single impact comes is from land conversion. So that's something we really want to avoid. And then second, if left to shift on its own, is that it would duplicate the system that exists in California today. And that was one that was you know, built piecemeal over a long period of time. Think of if you built a house and you built one room and later on you added a second room and then later on you tried to retrofit a plumbing system in and then later on you tried to retrofit HVAC in, it means you end up with something that is that is not efficient, that is uh, in this case not necessarily equitable, that is not built to last. And what we have here is a chance to to plan ahead, to start at that blueprint level and design it from the beginning of what kind of farming system do we want over the the next century and to really proactively and thoughtfully design that and make it much more equitable and much more sustainable. We have identified the mid-Mississippi Delta of sort of Tennessee, Arkansas, Mississippi is a region that would be a really great place to do this. It is an agricultural region already. It's really growing what are called commodity row crops. So things like rice, corn and soy for animal feed, wheat, and cotton. So these are very, very low margin crops where you need massive, massive farms to turn any kind of profit. It means there's really no value-added infrastructure because you don't do anything to soy before you feed it to a chicken or a pig. There's nothing else you do to it, the same you can to fruits and vegetables that are going to people. 
it's a very low margin industry. There's none of that value added processing that you can see the economic gains or jobs. Can we bring it to the mid Mississippi Delta, but again, do it proactively in a way that really serves as an engine of economic development and equity that focuses on farmers, especially small farmers and minority farmers in the region that brings all that processing to the region, but uses innovative business models and funders and structures to change who has wealth creation, who's seeing ownership of it, that we can build it in a more sustainable way that it can really be a steward of the land and last. That's a a major project going on right now we've been involved with for the last several years and I'm I'm really excited about. So what is the expected timeline for when you think agriculture will have to be somewhat phased out of California and what will be that impact on the Californian labor force and economy? It's a great question. I don't and I want to be clear, I don't think that California will stop growing everything. It's not that we expect California to cease being an agricultural state altogether. It's more that California will have to make the decisions over where they want to use their resources. So if you have a limited amount of water, what is most important? What do you want to support here? And how is that going to be used? So there are certainly crops that grow well in California and would not be well suited to grow in a lot of the rest of the U.S. Uh, And so those may continue to stay there. There's obviously very long established industries like the wine industry that is going to be much more ingrained than than crops that don't have all of the ancillary pieces connected to them. So I think California will need to really look at that and decide what makes the most sense with resources they have. We are seeing, though, even now, hints of crops shifting out. So I think to some extent, it's already started. I think it will accelerate. It's hard to say because it's not all or nothing. I don't know. I think it's a little hard to give a definitive timeline, but there have been studies on individual crops that have come out of various universities that show things like by 2050, California won't be able to grow peaches anymore. Now, someone can go come up with a new varietal of peaches. Maybe that changes the equation, but at least the peach varietals we have today really won't be able to exist in California by then. It's already getting a lot harder, though. So even now, maybe it's 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 not that they can all grow now and none can grow by then. It's going to be a shift. I've seen studies on tomatoes and how they will have to either move around the state very dramatically or ultimately out of the state. So there are maps that have been put out by by different universities, a number of universities in California, really looking at that. So I think it'll be phased as opposed to what that means for California. I think that's also an important question. That's obviously a huge industry in California, Central Valley in particular. And I would love, it's something not currently in the scope of the work we're doing, but something we've talked about a lot is, does there need to be an offshoot project, whether that's done by us, done by someone else? But taking the same thoughtful and proactive approach as we are at planning a system in the Delta at planning what happens to California's Central Valley next, because obviously you don't want to see it become a dust bowl if farms up and move and nothing is done. You don't want it to see it just be a loss of jobs and economics and and people left that are trying or struggling to to find and sur- find new opportunities to to earn money and to survive there. But I don't have a perfect, I mean, that, that work hasn't been done yet. So I, it's not that I can tell you exactly what will happen there, but I do think that is an important question that absolutely needs considerable attention. That makes a lot of sense. 
Thank you for expanding on that. And yeah, I would love to hear about the second project. Sure. And I have sort of four at different stages, so I can share more, but I thought I'd show a little bit of contrast between a couple. So another one that I'm hopefully, this one is very early stage, but to share something very different that I hope to, to kick off soon is in the world of invasive Asian carp. And they have been decimating the Mississippi River and its tributaries over the last several decades. They have no natural predators since they are an invasive species to the U.S. So they have proliferated really unchecked. They it's really hurt water quality, both directly through the presence of too many fish, also because they eat all the snails and mussels and sort of the natural filters that would be happening otherwise in the river. They've also outcompeted all the native species, so really hurting biodiversity. And then they have really hurt sort of recreational and sport fishing industries as well that are a valuable economic engine along the Mississippi River. And that is because they are massive fish. They are 60 to 100 pounds for each fish. And when the boat, when boats approach, they actually leap out of the water. You can look up videos on YouTube. It is from the safety of YouTube, a very spectacular sort of looking phenomenon. But the problem is these fish actually have done physical damage inadvertently, but done physical damage to, to people on the boats. They've broken noses. They've given people concussions because they are these massive fish flying through the air. If you're a commercial fisher who needs to make an income, you know, maybe you, it's one more challenge among many. But if you're out there for fun, that's a pretty large detriment to your fun. So it has hurt the economics as, as well. They are an entirely edible fish. They are actually very healthy. They have the highest content of all uh, river fish for omega-3 fatty acids. They have super high protein contents. They don't really have any mercury or lead or other things people worry about in some fish species, but they are super, super bony. So you cannot get a clean filet off of them. People in the US, at least, that's not how people here eat fish. So they don't have an interest in eating them particularly. But we have identified a less discerning audience, and that is our everyone's favorite pets. So cats and dogs are very happy to eat carp. And when you make pet food, you use the whole fish. That is standard practice and completely healthy and appropriate to do so. So you don't have to worry about bones. The whole thing gets ground up into kibble or heated and gelatinized into wet food. So we want to see, can we help create robust pet food demand in a pet food market to the point that it would actually have an effect on an invasive species and drive it down to a more manageable level where we can see biodiversity and water quality improve. This is a, a project I've been kicking the tires on and hope to get to launch in the next couple months, but to show something totally different, but what I am, I am excited to work on and my pets really want me to work on. You must work on this project for the sake of your pets. Exactly. <laughs> so across these two projects, what is the nature of your team's support? Is it largely strategic and consulting level work? Or is there also some financial component tied to it? It is actually more of the latter. So these are ideas that were developed in-house. These are sort of our original ideas that we are we are working on. So what usually happens is a an idea is developed, whether that is through conversations inside, constantly having conversations with experts across food and agriculture to just learn what's going on, keep abreast of cool things happening, to identify different ways that we can be supportive. 
But ultimately, a project is, at the end of the day, sort of developed in-house. And these two ideas definitely were. And then we sort of go through the metrics I shared earlier of trying to figure out, does this make sense for us to get involved? What role can we play? And then I actually, it's it's sort of the reverse and that I go in, if the project gets to the point that I, I do think it's a project that I should be involved with and I get approval and sort of sign off and support, I actually then go and fundraise for it. So it's not that we are necessarily giving funds. I, I go and get support to WWF and, and to my time to work on that. I mean, an individual project, depending what it looks like, may include a subgrant, for example, if we need to work with a partner to to accomplish goals in some way. But it's not that we are hired as consultants. It's not that we are providing strategic advice and funding on the ground efforts. It's it's more how our work needs to be carried out to get to the point of of seeing something live and succeed beyond us. To, you know, for something like the CART projects, because that's probably a slightly more straightforward, simpler one to explain, what it would look like for us is that this is something where what we've seen is that pet food companies are interested, but they don't actually do their first stage processing at all. So they are not sourcing from fishers. There is sort of an in-between processing fisher sell to an intermediary who does this original processing and then a pet food company might purchase it in something like a fish meal form or something like that. And that processing for carp really doesn't exist right now. That's one example of a, a hurdle of why this is not already happening. But the problem becomes a little bit of a fish, uh, you know, chicken and egg problem of the processing facility doesn't want to, no one's going to invest in a processing facility until they see that there's a market demand for it. But pet food companies are not going to commit and agree to purchase until they see that there is long-term stable processing because they don't want to start something up and then have broken supply chains. And no one's going to look at, do the economics sort of make sense even to pay fishers to go catch these fish until they have those other pieces in place? What we can do is look at is serve as almost de-risking it to some extent. So it is coming in, doing a lot of the research around what that would look like. And then also very importantly, answering the environmental questions around that too, of not just the questions I outlined of sort of economics, but also can you source enough fish uh, that you're able to reach a point where biodiversity improves and water quality improves. What does that mean for demand? How many fish need to be coming out? How can we minimize bycatch and other sort of, we don't, we certainly don't want to do more harm by taking them out. How does all of this create into a dynamic model of what this means for long-term supply for pet food companies who only want to invest if there's long-term supply, but meeting these environmental goals? What does that mean for processing? What are the economics across the industry? So doing all of that research, but it can also be at the same time bringing along all these partners. So finding potential people to invest in processing, finding pet food companies who are really interested, but helping to de-risk them by answering some of these questions or building a coalition or group of partners, as opposed to leaving it to one intrepid entrepreneur to go jump into this space and, and take on all of that risk themselves. And so we can help to to get it to that point. But I also share that because it shows that it's not that it's one group or one company that is usually involved here. It's usually a team effort of many different players. And that's where I think WWF can also bring value at is getting those diverse partners 
to the table. And then if it's successful, or even if it's not, frankly, sharing whatever we've learned from that. So it's not that we're going to share a partner company's detailed finances, but at a high level, you know, certainly sharing any of the research we do publicly, but then also sharing what are the lessons we learned here? Can this be applied to other invasive species? Can this be applied to other markets? And hoping through sharing that, that we spur efforts beyond us, that we don't need to be involved in each effort going forward, but we can share enough to spur offshoots and and new opportunities. That's actually exactly what I was thinking as you were sharing about the California project, because I feel like that trend is very translatable across many different sectors and regions. So by being able to create a program that can help successfully facilitate a transition into a new region, feel like a lot of variables, maybe not all of them, but at least a portion of them can translate to other sectors. So from that standpoint, I also think there's a lot of value. And outside of these two projects, and additionally, outside of conservation and agriculture, does your team or is your team or are you particularly excited about, even within agriculture, are there any other trends that are particularly catching your eye right now? WWF certainly works more broadly than food and agriculture. So we have sort of six goal teams, they're called. So we have forests, oceans, food and freshwater. So they also do some food work, although not always from a necessarily from a markets angle, wildlife, climate, and then my team, which is the markets team. So we certainly work across a wide variety of areas. I am always fascinated by the cool work that my colleagues are doing that I don't even necessarily know is happening until there's public announcements or brown bags. But there's well over 600 of us just in the US, not to mention all of the international staffers. So a lot to try to to stay abreast of, but certainly can go and check out other cool things. As far as agriculture and food, I mean, one thing I've been heartened by, although I'm also curious to see how it moves forward and I think there's many difficulties in harnessing it, but the trend I think in the last few years of people being aware of more how the impact of their food and starting to ask questions around that. Even in my time at WWF, I feel like that's evolved. Uh, I've been here, it'll be, you know, a little shy of six years at this point. And I feel like that has evolved from people really not thinking of food as something to worry about when think about when it comes to the environment, to starting to ask more questions about more sustainable diets, looking at uh, the impact of food and choices they have on the the planet. And food and agriculture is the single largest impact that people have on the planet. And so I think it's wonderful to see that. Again, very, very complicated issue. So I don't want to simplify that by any means. But I, I love the increasing focus on how we're growing our food, where we're growing our food, and what that process really looks like and means for consumers. And so I'm, I am heartened by that. This might be too specific, but if you were to launch a company to address a major problem in the food and ag space today, what problem would that be? And if there isn't a specific problem that comes to mind, are there any areas within food and ag as it pertains to the production process, as well as what we end up doing with our food after it gets to the later ends of the supply chain? Are there any problems that you've observed during your time at WWF that you feel like 
more work needs to be done within those fields? I have not thought about what company I would I would launch, although it's a very interesting thought-provoking I'm just, question. I'm just thinking from the standpoint of, because a lot of people who listen to this podcast are interested in attacking big problems within this field. And because food and ag is such an important area, I think it would be just interesting to hear your thoughts as someone who so knowledgeable about this area to like understand additional trends that you feel more work and focus needs to be applied within. Of course, the two projects that you mentioned provided a lot of insight into two additional areas that more support and like impacts will be had as a result of climate. But if there are any others, just think it'd be interesting for people to get your perspective on that front. But if nothing's coming to mind, I feel like we've already discussed some really interesting areas, which gives more than enough for people to work with. I don't know if it's a, a company. One thing I would, you mentioned, I think a couple big issues there. You were alluding, I think, to food at the end of the supply chain and food waste and food loss and things like that. I think there's so many important areas to look at. I think if you look at some of this, what is looked at less is really what happens on farm and more specifically how farmers get paid to engage in different practices. So I think it's often people looking at farther down, but I would almost look at the end going back to the beginning in some way. There's a lot of talk about things like regenerative agriculture, which isn't even particularly defined at this point. And people, I mean, WWF has its own definition we've been working on. And, but it is a very complicated concept because it involves a, a huge array of, of measures and things like that. But even if we establish that, I think the question becomes for a farmer who tend, farmers tend to make very, very small margins. Are they getting paid to engage in more in regenerative practices? Are they getting paid to engage in more sustainable practices? And right now, the answer is no. And it either needs to be lower cost for them. So fewer inputs, things like that, that would improve their margins, or they need to see a premium the same way things like organic demands a premium. Can something like regenerative demand a premium? Because at the end of the day, otherwise, we're asking farmers to do something that they probably can't afford to do. And even if it's lower inputs, if it's a huge upfront cost, how are they tackling that? I would... I think it would be interesting to to see more thought around thoughts around that. I don't know that it's a company idea, but continuing to look at what that means. I think that does tie into consumer demand as well, because obviously if a consumer pays more, then that can company will start sourcing more and perhaps farmers can get higher premiums. But even there, it's incredibly complicated. So we'd love to see lots of great minds and, and people digging into it because it's not a clear this is or isn't sustainable. I mean, it's if something's organic, it's either organic or it's not, and that's certified by the USDA. It's not something a consumer a consumer can decide what they if they care about it, but they're not trying to figure out what it means. When you look at something around the sustainability of food, you're now weighing things like water use against pesticide use, against land conversion, against greenhouse gas footprint, against everything else that goes into it, soil health, biodiversity, and I work in this space and I have no idea how to weigh all of those competing concerns against each other. And so certainly when someone is going into a store to grab something off a shelf quickly, they're not going to be able to weigh all of those. So I think figuring out 
what does that mean for the consumer at the end of the day? How can we give people information without overloading them? How can we communicate simply and clearly how how people can help with this and then tie that back to therefore farmers at the end of the day would be would be fascinating, but I don't have the answers on how to do all of that. So. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Julia. I just have one final question to conclude. And I've learned so much through this conversation. The final question is related to career and personal advice. So if you could go back in time and give a piece of advice to your younger self, yourself while you were in graduate school, knowing how your career has taken shape, which has been incredible by all all metrics, is there anything that comes to mind? That's cool. I see. I had the undergrad. The undergrad jumped into mind first. I was going back further. Work too. <laughs> I mean, I guess it can apply later on. What I do think about all the time with undergrad, one, I probably should have stayed in environmental engineering. That was my original major, and then I switched out. And clearly, I should have stuck with the original major, but it worked out in the end. But I think it's you can change paths. Like you don't have to know all of what you want to do at each step of the way, and and that I think can also be true coming out of grad school, although. People are often farther along in their career and know more, but it's something I know that when I was an undergrad and there were so many of my friends going in, you know, I was on a, there were sort of defined industries that people went into out of undergrad and it was like finance, tech and management consulting because they came to campus and they recruited and it was an easy process. And I wasn't interested in any of those. And it was nerve wracking. And it was nerve wracking many times throughout my career of trying to navigate that and figure out what do I really want to do? And where do I go next? And how do I get there? And I think it is totally okay, in hindsight, that you don't know all the time. I mean, obviously, you need something. But I think taking a job, even if it's not it, every job doesn't have to be a dream job if it's something you're enjoying and learning from and getting something out of. And I would say that's been true of my career. I valued every step of it. And I have learned from every step. And it's not that each job was, this is where I want to be forever, but it allowed me to get closer to figuring out what I did want to do. And sometimes that was from the work itself. Sometimes it was the structure of the work, but continuing to to move in that direction and being willing to, I think it's, my advice is to take the time to do that rather than feeling like you need all of the answers uh, at the beginning. Amazing. Thank you so much, Julia. Thank you. Really Thank appreciate you. taking the time and all of the insight. Well, it's been great to, to be here. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Check out the episode description or show notes for more information on our guest. See you next time.